Okay, the title of the book is Beyond Freedom and Dignity by B.F. Skinner. A culture is very much like the experimental space used in the analysis of behavior. Both are sets of contingencies of reinforcement. A child is born into a culture as an organism to be placed in an experimental space. Designing a culture is like designing an experiment. You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Alrighty, well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. You can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. My guest in this episode is John Adams. Now, John is a researcher and commentator on culture creation, and we're going to be talking to him about that um, with specific regard to marriage and the family. But before we get to that, I've got to bring John on. So for the first time on Like Flint Radio, welcome John Adams. How's it going? Good, thanks, John. Thank you for um, uh, coming on. Um, before we get into our topic here, can you tell our audience just a little bit about yourself and, um, you know, just feel free to share as much as you, you like? Uh, yeah. Well, my name's John Adams. I'm 37 years old. Uh, I have lived uh, pretty much all my life in Southern California. I grew up in a city called Orange, California, and uh, I've just been looking into various different uh, areas of how the world works uh, for quite a bit of time now, and I was at one time a musician and uh, still am pursuing uh, guitar playing, and that's about it. Right. Now, um, we want to talk about culture creation. Um, can you give us a brief definition of what that is and how you came to be so interested in it? Uh, yeah, well, culture creation is where y your culture that you're born into is given to you. It's created for you. You don't really have a lot of things in your life that you could actually say, are your own. Um, a lot of people's thoughts are given to them, and uh, they're given them through the mass media. Um, a lot of people's interests and tastes, and all, you know, just anything—fads, trends—it's all given to you. It's not anything that uh, you come up with yourself, right? And you tend, and you—I speak. I'm speaking generally. Yeah. Uh, all of us, all of all of us, are born into our cultures. There's not really uh, too much we can do about that, except uh, you can recognize 
what it is and what, whether it's uh, leading you in the um, direction uh, towards an ending uh, with, with the culture creators uh, have in mind. And, and that's kind of uh, how I got interested in it was um, uh, Alan Watt is a researcher. And um, I had already been interested in popular culture and examining popular culture, and I didn't really have a lot of notion as to why things uh, went through cycles the way that they did. Um, I could never understand it. Um, an example that I've given before is when heavy metal music was popular in the 1980s, mm. all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they just turned it off. Like, it, it, it just disappeared overnight, and then grunge and punk rock music became popular. Yeah. And I remember that happening uh, because I was a teenager at the time, and uh, it really confused me as to, like, wait a minute, like, none of that stuff's on TV anymore, none of that stuff's on the radio. They literally just cut it off. So somebody had to have done that. It... it uh, the trends and the fads are all directed. They're all uh, given when when they're given to you. The consumer doesn't really have a say. The consumer just consumes for the sake of consuming. So whatever's on the television, you like it. Whatever's on the radio, you like it. I, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, you end up you yeah. end up liking it. Whether you, the first time you hear it, you may not, but after that, you like it. Then everyone else likes it, and then uh, away it goes. Um, that's true. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's that's fair. Uh, yeah, because listen, I've I've long believed that uh, uh, things don't just happen out of the blue. Um, especially major things, major changes don't just happen. They're thought about. They're created somewhere. Someone's thought about it somewhere. Someone's put it together somewhere and put it into action. Now, whether that that can be in any uh, area of our lives, but the music industry is a good one. And just before we came on here, we had a good good discussion about that. Maybe we should talk about that one day, um, because the music is a good one to identify the changes and how they can come about. But um, listen, um, I've heard you talk before about how our attitude, and I'm, I mean, you know, this generation and the one before us, but our attitude towards marriage and family has changed. So, can you give us a, an idea of? what has changed and how it happened? Like, what have we, where were we before we ended up where we are now um, with regard to, um, say, marriage and family? Um, well, marriage and family uh, used to be a center of life. It was just basically accepted that that's what you were going to do. Right. Um, to, to a certain extent. Um, and if you didn't, it, it was kind of, it was kind of strange um, you had the old maid, uh, which was a woman who was not married, and most of the time that was the person who would end up taking care of their uh, father and mother when they got older. John, what age would have an old maid been back in the day? As as young uh, as someone in their, in their 20s. Right, okay. In their late 20s, maybe. Right. And um, after a certain point... Uh, so you know they they would uh, people would just think that you know that that woman was too old to get married. Now I'm not saying that that was right or wrong. No, that's no, just the way no. that it, that's just the way that it was. Right. Okay. Yes. And you see now, 
you have people in their 40s just having their first child and just getting married. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong either. But what I'm saying is we need to recognize that there has been a shift culturally to where at one point you used to get married when you're in your tw- in your early part of your 20s. Sometimes the women were even younger than that. A man, a man would have been 22 years old and his wife would have been 17. And right. society didn't think something like that was wrong. Right. Uh, today, today now you see uh, people getting married who are more closer in age. And before it was, uh, especially around the time of the nuclear, of what was called the nuclear family, which the nuclear family itself was something culturally created. It wasn't a natural thing. Right. Um, because back in the day there would have been an extended family, wouldn't there, where you would have uh, grandma and granddad and aunts and uncles and, and cousins and, and that around you, right? That's right. But um, one of the ways that that was uh, shifted was through the culture. They told you you, didn't, you, you you needed to move away from home. You needed to get away from your extended family. You, you only have three kids, and that's it. And it's funny, um, to give the example of, of Life magazine uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, uh, Life magazine was one of the uh, progenerators of this idea of the nuclear family and they were pushing that idea out into the culture and it's interesting anytime you saw pictures of people with more than three kids they were always immigrants they always looked very uh, downtrodden and distressed right and so it gave people an image of well they've got an economic burden because of all the children that they're having, so you don't want to have more than three. And so that's just one example. Um, but, yeah, in, in earlier time periods, I mean, like, like for instance, I, I live on a street where um, you can see houses that were built in the 1890s, mm-hmm. and they've been, they've been uh, preserved. And we're talking about six, seven, eight-bedroom houses, but they're not mansions, you see, because people used to fill up those rooms with children. That's right. So today you would consider a seven, eight-bedroom house a mansion, and you wouldn't even know what to do with it because you don't have any children to fill up those rooms anyways. So, uh, And then, uh, like myself, I, w- I was born into a family of five children, and... Uh, the last one was born in the early part of the 1990s. And when I would tell people that, you know, I had four brothers and sisters, they would look, they would, uh, the first thing they'd ask me if I was Mormon. <laughs> well, well, I, I was <laughs> going to say, that, that that's funny because I was going to say, I grew up in a, a family uh, of uh, seven children uh, is the ones I grew up with. And um, whenever we you know, moved anywhere, we were assumed to be a Catholic family. <laughs> right. So, so right, yeah, same exactly. thing. Yeah, same thing, different religion. Yeah, exactly, because it was so far removed by, you know, the even the early part of the 1990s mm. uh, that no, normal people just didn't have five children in their family. They're, they're, you know, they must either, either they must be Catholic, Mexican, or Mormon. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. So the family and the uh, the idea of having children 
we're we're now to a point currently where um, the generations that are coming up, and even even people of my generation, and I'm like you said, I'm 37 years old, so I graduated high school in 1996. Um, people are having if if they are getting married and having children, they're having them much later. They're getting married much later or they're not getting married at all. And I have a lot of friends who aren't getting married at all. Uh, the divorce rate is really high. And there's a lot of people who are who are really lost when it right. comes to right. those, those sorts of things. Right. And uh, I don't see that as something that's happened by accident. Right. Especially when you delve into the literature of what you would call the the controllers or the elite, right. and they've been writing about this for a century, and and even longer. I mean, if you even if you go back into the writings of Plato and things things like that, uh, this has always been the goal is to is to uh, get people to not actually bond with each other, and uh, the idea of having sex without reproduction. There would have been widespread changes once the idea of widespread uh, contraception came in, once that came in. That's correct. One, th one thing um, people take uh, for granted is, one, convenience, and two, um, where ideas get injected into the whether it be the vernacular or whether it be their way of life, right? They, they, people never question how things just you know magically come into into being. They don't think about where, where their slang comes from, um, where uh, where the idea for the kind of clothes that they wear come from. So they're definitely not going to. If they're not even going to question something like that, they would definitely not question how did I come about with this idea that I was not going to get married or have children. Yeah. It would just be kind of something you would grow up with. Now, if you, how would you do something like that? Well, you would have to inject it into the culture little by little by little. It would have to be done uh, gradually, uh, what I would refer to as Fabian style. Mm -hmm. Um because uh, if you look at the, what the Fabian Society uh, out of uh, England, uh, which they were the Fabian Socialists, um, and their, mo their model of how to implement uh, socialist ideas into society was uh, through gradualism, and that's the reason they called themselves the Fabian Society, because there was allegedly a, a Roman general uh, named Fabian, and, he's, and his idea was that you don't take your enemy head on right in a in a battle what yep. you do is is you is you weave your way into his culture and you break him down little by little gradually yeah and so that that's what you do if you want if you have an idea if you say here's my goal my goal is to not have people uh procreate and to turn them into totally uh, a total hedonistic society, mm -hmm. then what you would have to do is you would have to start a hundred years earlier 
That's right, because it doesn't happen overnight. That's 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 the point. It doesn't happen overnight. It has to be thought out, thought about at some point, and then slowly but surely uh, put into action. Um, uh, for example, uh, if you wanted to create a hedonistic society, um, the two things you would have to do is you would have to uh, break down moral barriers, uh, increase the interest in things of a sexual nature, but then um, try and uh, also alleviate, if that's the correct word, the consequences of that. So therefore, you could uh, you know, have much sex as you want with as many people as you want without the fear, and I'm speaking just in general, general here, but without the fear of falling pregnant. Is that kind of what you're talking about if we talk about, say, procreation? Absolutely. And you'd have to create the atmosphere, right? i.e. I. the culture, Right. For that to for that to exist and you, you can't just introduce it into a culture mm. and then expect people to latch onto that unless there is an atmosphere that is rife with the type of things that would go along with that. So if you took for instance the nineteen twenties where where a lot of this started to come about, mm-hmm. you had the age of prohibition, which prohibition actually led to more people drinking more people having sex uh, outside of wedlock. Yeah. Um, uh, and one of the reasons given was because the war, uh, the First World War, was so bad that people were just going to live it up afterwards because it just couldn't get any worse, I guess. Right. Um, I come from the school of thought that pretty much all wars are contrived. Right. They're all planned out ahead of time. Right. Uh, the, the winners and the losers are all worked out ahead, and the people on both sides of the conflict are are in cahoots together. And w- what they're really trying to do is they're trying to change culture because one thing uh, you can learn from history is that war not only changes the culture of the, of the person being attacked, but it changes the culture of the attacker as well. That's right. So out, out of a conflict, you can get a lot of change in your society. Uh, especially if it's desired changed, and and so so you know America got the Jazz Age. I, I always thought that prohibition, the purpose of prohibition was to actually make people drink, because if something becomes taboo, then it becomes very risque and it's something very cool to do. Yes, yes. So, so uh, prohibition uh, actually having the opposite effect of what was you know purported was actually really the desired effect. Mm, mm. And you can see that in the culture because, uh, you know, the jazz music is there, the the drinking's there, uh, the loosening up, the miniskirt is there, the miniskirt came. I mean, you're talking about uh, just a, a generation earlier, women were wearing skirts down to their ankles, and then all of a sudden you've got women wearing skirts above their knees. Right. You've also got Hollywood coming in at that time as well. And um, if you look at a lot of the old silent films, um, it's basically uh, underage starlets running around nude. So you've got the movies, you've got the music, you've got the culture, and uh, there was a loosening up then. Now, by the time you get into the 1950s, people tend to think of the 1950s as uh, a very, you know, um, constrictive type Mm. of society Mm. 
Um, but it's not really the case. I mean, you could say like uh, there was there was a lot of people who were more you know who were moralistic and and that's kind of the ideal that's kind of looked back on the like the ideal that's America. Right. Yeah. The, the only problem is you have to once again look at what came out of it. It was people were only having three children. People were getting divorced more by that time. Uh, divorce was actually being made uh, legal. Women could divorce their husband. Before that, you could not. A woman could not divorce her husband. How do we approach that view um, from from this point? You know, what I mean, looking back, it's 2015. We're looking back now at another time. People say, "Oh, well, that's how it was done," but we do it different these days. Women are free. Uh, and they should be um, uh, more free. And then you could, I don't want to get into it, but you could get into the abortion issue and, and, and all of that. So, um, uh, right. How do the, we... the abortion, the abortion issues is, is, is summed up real quick. Yeah. Um, and, and women's freedom is summed up yeah. really quick. It's, it's, it's a, it's a real quick thing. First of all, as the culture is shifting and the culture is being shaped yeah. by the people controlling it, they're moving you along as well. They're moving your beliefs, and the the thing about it is is um, if you were to go into uh, ancient Indian religious texts and even uh, into someone like Alvin Toffler from the 1970s and early part of the 80s, uh, you know the religion of Theosophy. They talk about uh, time moving in waves. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, that's why Alvin Toffler has a book called The Third Wave. Yes, yes. Um, so time moves in waves, but see, people's thoughts and ideas and the images that are projected into their brains uh, move in waves as well. And these waves pass through you, these waves of time. You're not cogn cognating how that is actually happening. Mm. You're not aware of it. For the most part, most people are not aware of, of the changes that are shifting uh, in, in the present, just in the present moment. So so uh, when someone like myself or yourself would be considered old-fashioned, yeah. right? Yep. That's because people have been updated, like a computer gets updated, <laughs> with, an, with an idea that beliefs and ideas and ideas can change at any moment because that's what you call progress. But right. see, their progress has never, ever been defined. There's never been a definition given of what progress actually is, right? Right. You're just, you're just muddling on through this time where you've got these ever-shifting, ever-changing morals, values, ideas, uh, but you're never given a definition of what you're actually progressing towards. Well, 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 to the point, John, where people of a liberal nature are called progressives. That's right. Mm -hmm. that, that is true, and, and they don't even know uh, what that actually means because uh, e even the, 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 those people themselves are just um, useful dupes for mm -hmm. bringing in uh, something that they really have no idea uh, what is actually going to happen in the future uh, when this all takes put when this uh, all comes to a head, and 
And as far as something like abortion, you see, I've always thought that uh, that when you hear uh, public debates about abortion, they size them up uh, purposely in favor of of pro-choice, obviously, because it's you know a very uh, liberally biased media, even on a level one way of thinking. Um, but ab- abortion, you see, you, you, I, t- I try not to argue it from a, a religious perspective, right? Right. I, here's here's all you would have to do, and see, this has always bothered me because I had a mother who was um, who was an abortion protester. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, she uh, worked at these things back in the early part of the '80s called the Life Center, where they would set up shop next to an abortion clinic and try to uh, coax women not to go have an abortion. Right. And this predates Operation Rescue and those type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all those years, my mother and myself never heard anything about eugenics. Yes. And that's never brought up, and it, it's always really bothered me. And I, I tend to believe that a lot of uh, anytime you hear these abortion uh, these abortion debates, you're going to get something of a controlled opposition uh, when it comes to opposing pro-choice because it will mostly be argued from a perspective of, well, it's my belief because I believe life is sacred and that's my religion, when really you could knock them dead in a heartbeat if you just said, look, Margaret Singer set a Planned Parenthood. Margaret Singer wrote Adolf Hitler letters saying that she agreed with what he was doing she wrote a paper called The Negro Problem, saying that blacks were weeds and they needed to be exterminated. And that Planned Parenthood and the idea of abortion in itself is purely based off of getting rid of poor people of all colors, white, black, Mexican, doesn't matter. If you're poor, uh, you're out because... Uh, the elite uh, set up, it was set up by the Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefellers uh, arguably are, you know, some of the most richest people in the history of the world. Right. And they set up Margaret Singer to to create Planned Parenthood. So, so that's what you have to think of yourself. Uh, is that a woman's right? Never had anything to do with women's rights, ever. That was just the cover. That was the cover for bringing in a form of eugenics. Great. Great response to my question. If someone came up to you and said, Darth, you know what? There is no laws on the book saying that you uh, are allowed to chop your arm off. You said, you know what? You're right. right. I need to go down there and protest that there are no laws saying that I can legally chop my arm off. Yeah. 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 That's that's basically what it is. It's saying, you know, hey, there were no laws on the book saying that I can't kill my baby. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get these people riled up and thinking that they don't have any rights. Yes. And and then they'll go uh, they'll go basically do whatever we tell them to do because they watch TV and they're part of the culture. It's interesting if you go back and you watch uh, some of the earliest American television shows, uh, the Honeymooners and I Love Lucy. Yeah. Right. Yep. Two of the earliest, right there, which are, which are basic. Those two, pro, those two programs. And I, I don't use the word program lightly. Yes, um, yes, because yes. that's what they are. They're programming you. Yeah. But, um, those two programs, and every 
show afterwards is all about lying. Right. Okay, as innocent as those shows may seem, the shows are all based around lying. Yes. Okay, I Love Lucy is based around a woman who, who repetitively lies to her husband and gets herself in a jam. Yes. Same thing with the honeymooners. It's the dumbed-down dope of a man who can't get it right and all he does is, is lie and gets in trouble with his wife. Yeah. Okay, so then you've got much more... Um, as time goes on, uh, through television, you see things like that, like Bewitched, is um, what you would call, you know, it, it's interesting, too, uh, this is how you know that stuff in the culture is all lined up perfectly. You see, right as the feminist era is coming in, you've got these shows that, uh, one, where women are the main focus of them. Yes. And two, these women have magic powers. Yes. Okay. Yep. The man, the the male on the program, is a doofus. He's he's yep. he's dumbed down. He he's he's a bumbling fool. Yep. But luckily, luckily for him, he's got a woman with magic powers, who can help him make it through the episode. Yes. And and everything comes up comes out you know with a nice little bow wrapped around it in the end. Yes. And. A lot of times in the, you know, feminists didn't like those type of programs. They said that was like the male chauvinist fantasy. Yeah, yep. To have, to have something like I Dream of Jeannie, but that was incorrect. It was actually very empowering to women because uh, in, in that sense, in the, in the feminist sense, because That's right. because uh, you had the women running the show and the man was a doofus. Yes. Then you get into uh, today's programming which it's literally, I mean, the man is, is he, he's like one step away from being a complete and total cave-dwelling creature, and the children, even the children order him around. Yeah, that's right. And the women themselves uh, portrayed in, in modern, uh, this, is, this is what uh, feminism has wrought, is you have a completely hedonistic woman uh, who is obsessed with, um, you know, total materialism, and she's not portrayed as being intelligent in any way, shape, or form. She, uh, you know, uh, intelligence is knowing all of the names of the latest fashion designers and, uh, you know, what the most popular shoes and handbags are. And a lot of them, too, especially in the movies, are quite violent. They're portraying women as quite violent now. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I brought that up before. Is uh, the women are now being used, um, uh, especially in war films like yeah. uh, Zero Dark, Easter Bunny. I mean, sorry, Zero Dark Thirty, <laughs> which, which was a, which was basically a leather-clad um, woman uh, torturing potential terrorists, and yeah. it was just torture. It was just a torture film. Yeah. Uh, with a with an S and M theme to it, but it was shrouded in the idea that you know she was going to get the information for the CIA to find out where Osama bin Laden was. But really, what you're watching is a torture S and M film. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was going to comment, and and um, you know, this is just personal observation. I do personally know um, a number of families where the children tell the father what to do, and they're quite young as well. I'm talking ten year old kids. 
um, ordering their father around. Um, and, I, and that's just anecdotal evidence, but I've seen it in at least two families that I know personally. Yeah. You know what else uh, was was rife within the culture in in that time period, once again, culture lining up just magically, you know, for people mm. who don't really think that culture is directed and, and that television producers and writers aren't told to actually put stuff into scripts and movies mm. uh, for television and, and uh, movies and music and music as well. That's all directed. All the lyrics that you're hearing at the specific time, mm -hmm. uh, they coincide with all the things that are happening in the culture. Yes. So uh, one of the things you could have seen in, the t in television uh, during the late 60s, 70s, and 80s was there was always a rape episode and there was always mm -hmm. an abortion episode because right. you had to tie, tie the two together because they really had a hard time selling people on the idea that it was just my right to kill my baby. So right. what they had to do is they had to give you um, a really good reason to be able to do that, and one of that was rape. Yes. And so so you saw that running through the culture was, oh, well, what if I get raped? What if I get raped? And so yes. they always had a television episode to reinforce that, uh, yes. where one of the characters on the show gets raped, and then she has an abortion, and then everything's okay. Yes. Now, um, can we can we talk a little bit about contraception? Um I know you've gone back and looked at the intentions of the in inventors and authors of the the pill and what they really wanted to do with that what what the reason was it wasn't just it wasn't for women's rights it wasn't for women's rights so um no it, it had nothing to do with women's rights and in fact I've got the book that you're mentioning right here yeah. in my hand yeah this book I have here in my hand it's called the politics of Con contraception right and it was it was written by Carl Jurassic who uh, is given the title as the inventor of the pill. And um, if you go into one of these uh, little sections of these essays, he's, he's written on, on the subject of the politics of contraception. Um, what he talks about here has nothing to do with women's rights. Okay. And it doesn't have anything to do with caring about, you know, well, what if a woman wants to have sex and she doesn't want to get pregnant, or what if a man doesn't want to get a woman pregnant? That's what contraception has to be used for, and that's why we have it, so people can get sexual pleasure. I'm just going to tell you one thing. The elite don't give a darn about your sexual pleasure. Right, okay? right, right. They could, not care they could not care less about that. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, um, you know, these people are talking from a religious perspective. I'm not talking about this from a religious perspective. Right. I'm just talking about it from plain, ordinary, what you can read. So if you go so go buy yourself a copy of The Politics of Contraception by Carl Jurassic, he'll tell you what contraception is actually for. Now, in this section right here, he's talking about... John? The book was, that I'm reading from is called The Politics of Contraception. It's by Carl Jurassic. 
Okay. He was the man who was credited with inventing the pill. And he's talking about in here, uh, Aldous Huxley, who was a, a friend of his, apparently, at some point. And Aldous Huxley wrote a book in 1932 called Brave New World, and everyone should get a copy of that and read it because it's about a society uh, where reproduction and sex are separated and babies are born in laboratories and test tubes and things of that nature, and people have sex purely for pleasure. Well, this book, uh, Carl Jurassic is writing about, he says, he's talking about populations. And so he says, the annual increase of population numbers should be reduced, but how? We are given two choices, famine, pestilence, and war on one, birth control on the other. Most of us choose birth control and immediately find ourselves confronted by a problem that is simultaneously a puzzle in physiology, pharmacology, sociology, psychology, and even theology. The pill, in italics, has not yet been invented. When and if it is invented, how can it be distributed to the many hundreds of millions of potential mothers, or if it is a pill that works upon the male potential fathers, who will have to take it if the birth rate of the species is to be reduced? And given existing social customs and the forces of cultural and psychological inertia, how can those who ought to take the pill but don't want to be persuaded to change their minds? And what about the objections on the part of the Roman Catholic Church to any form of birth control? Huxley wrote these words two years before the oral contraceptive was introduced into medical practice. Deliberately or inadvertently, he thus fathered the term the pill in the current accepted sense, a piece of esoterica that I was delighted to uncover on rereading Huxley's book recently, since I had always assumed that the pill had simply slipped into our vernacular gradually and anonymously. So what he's saying there is that Aldous Huxley created the word the pill, the phrase. Right. Okay. Yes. Huxley's, Huxley's question of how to persuade a populace to use birth control was taken up by one of the most interesting scientists of the century, Leo Sislard, the first physicist to conceive of an atomic chain reaction. Sislard, uh, I'm, I'm just going to skip down here to what this guy says, this guy Leo Sislard, okay? He says, clearly it would be highly desirable to develop some sort of biological method of birth control adequate for the needs of the underdeveloped areas of the world. It is by no means certain that any of the present developments aimed at finding a really satisfactory method for birth control are moving in the right direction. Too few of the men active in this field have the kind of imagination and productivity that one finds among those attracted by fundamental biological problem, problems of intrinsic in interest. Too many are inclined to look upon the solution of the problem as a lifetime job. The attraction of the problem of mammalian reproduction to younger scientists mainly due to the recognition of its overwhelming importance for population control in the underdeveloped areas of the world. A good solution would be a drug that might be administered once a month to a woman in the form of a pill. Even better, perhaps, would be a drug that could be mixed with certain staple foods, such as, for instance, rice, 
and made accessible to large families who live in poverty, such as an infertility brand of staple food might perhaps be sold with a government subsidy at a price below that of a commercial brand of the same staple. This type of drug administration would demand the use of the drug that is without any detrimental physiological effect for both women and men. Okay? Right, right. And when, when was this written, John? 1979. Right, yeah. If you go into a book that was written actually before that, this book was written in 1968. It was a very popular book. It was called The Population Bomb. Yeah. It was, it was written by Dr. Paul R. Ehrlich, who, for any conservative Christians listening to the show, was the science czar under George W. Bush. Right. Okay. So these people who want people to die, they they don't take political sides. Okay? Yes, that's right. He he writes here on page one thirty five of a chapter called What Needs to Be Done. Or he says, So the first task is population control at home. How do we go about it? Many of my colleagues feel that some sort of compulsory birth regulation would be necessary to achieve such control. One plan often mentioned involves the addition of temporary sterilants to water supplies or staple foods. <laughs> yeah. Doses of the antidote would be carefully rationed by the government to produce the desired population size. Yeah, which is quite scary, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. But, but you know, here, here's the thing. Um, when it comes to that type of stuff, it's been happening for a really long time, and so if this is uh, scaring you for the first time, don't <laughs> get scared if you're just finding out about it because it's been going on, obviously, for a very long time. And which is why we gave the background to culture creation and how things, you know, uh, are brought in slowly into culture, popular culture, and slowly into your society. Um, you, people might not even be aware that these things are happening um, but when you look back especially it's good to give some uh, quotes from some of the people involved you can see there's a different agenda to the one that you think you're uh, a part of that's right mm. that's right it's, mm. it's, you can't think of things that are taking place in the world or in cult you know, you know um, a good example is is music, people tend to think of something as their song. That's right. Or perfume. Mm -hmm. take, take perfume. Yes. People think that cologne and perfume, hey, that's my scent, right? Yes, yes. Good example. Well, that cologne and that perfume or that song, you know, there's a million other people listening to it and wearing that cologne or perfume. Yeah. Not your scent. Yeah. Not your song. Yeah. But, but you're sold that idea. You see it in adver advertisements every day on TV. Um, That's right. You deserve to feel special. You deserve. This is just for you. Um, it's all about you. Uh, you're an individual. Only individuals would wear this. And then when you look around, everyone's wearing it. You know. But but we're still sold that idea. And many of us believe it. That's right. Uh, you know, back in the '60s, they had a saying: "Be different. Wear blue jeans." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. A perfect so, example, uh, yeah. 
Another good example is because people don't question where their ideas are getting dished out from. Mm. Um, for the most part, they don't even recognize that there is a culture. They don't think of they don't think about culture. Uh, they don't think about change. No, because they're actually living in a, in an ether. You know, they're living in a. They're, they're floating. You know, it's funny, um, and I'm sure you've encountered this. There's sometimes there's someone who's wearing so much perfume, they don't even know how much they have on. Right, right. And they're literally stinking up, you know, the entire street. And that's how people are with all of the technology, all of the little baubles and trinkets, all of the little stuff to distract them. They're floating around in their own ether. And, of course, every, everybody's got problems. Everybody's got things going on in their life Correct. Uh, that that, that um, we all have to deal with. And for the most part, what what is taking place is if you were to point out to somebody uh, stuff that we're talking about here, um, that would push them further and deeper into um, distracting themselves. To avoid the truth? That, yeah, I think a lot of people actually know uh, the truth deep down. Deep down, yes. But but, uh, but what they need is they need a lot of distraction. They don't want to think about things. I've actually had that said to me by family members where right. I, I would point things out to them. They say, I, I don't want to talk about this stuff because um, I, I, I don't want to think about that. Mm. That's too real for me. Yes. I've actually had someone say that that's too real for me, yes. and uh, and actually uh, say that they don't like to be home alone by themselves because then they start thinking. Yes, and so um, it's been it's been real easy to uh, get people involved in this way of of, of distraction. Hmm. Been, it's been very easy because we've had uh, so many uh, years and generations of what you would call mass media. Mm. And I've talked about this before with Chris, um, which if, if, you, uh, if anybody wants to check out anything, um, any of the talks uh, that I do, I do it with a gentleman named Chris Kendall, and he has a blog called Hoaxbusters. Uh, call.com. That's right. I was going to I was going to finish on that, but we'll just say uh, I just want to say thanks to Chris for helping me uh, set this up. Uh, and if you do want to hear more of John Adams' uh, discussions on these topics, uh, you can go over to Chris's uh, site called hoaxbusterscall.com. Um, and also the other thing is, we might as well say this while we're at at this point. Um, if you'd like to have John Adams back on our show, please write to me direct at gk at likeflintradio.com. So, yes, so go on, John. But one of the things that, that um, isolates people is information overload. Cultural change actually comes real easily when you have people who are not aware of the changes and go along with the changes, but you have to. there has to be something to be able to guide them. And the guiding comes through, you know, the mediums of music, television, movies, because that's what our culture is based around now. That's right. But at the same time, it's 
when you have a mass media, it is very generalized. It is homogenizing. Okay? What it does is it creates it, it does not create individuality at all. No. It turns people into virtual automatons mm-hmm. because you are getting broadcasted the exact same thing in all areas of the country, the world, what have you. So when you're able to do that, when you're able to get information out to all sectors on a massive scale, then you have people who are going to be affected by that information in a very similar way. It's not always going to be the same. It's going to be similar, and it's going to be doing the job that it is. And it's what you would call weaponized information. And a barrage of information, um, literally a battering ram of a smothering of information, where there's so much information coming out about so many different things all at the same time, people cannot absorb it. It's impossible to absorb. Yeah. And so what you get is people tuning out and then they're no longer involved in paying attention to what changes are actually happening around them, and then they no longer become concerned with any of the changes. And we haven't even mentioned uh, drugs here, uh, uh, illicit drugs. We haven't even mentioned them yet. But that will also uh, help with that tuning out. I don't want to be a part of this reality, therefore I will take you know, X, Y, and Z and, 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 and zone out. Um, you know, it's it's interesting when when they first sold the idea of LSD, um, because LSD came from the culture creation industry as well. It, and if you don't believe me that there, um, anybody who's listening to this, if you don't believe me that there's a culture industry, uh, it's actually very widely written about. You just have to go and find it in certain books. Uh, but they actually call it the culture industry. In fact, you could read Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. Mm-hmm. which was written in 1971. It was a very mainline book. It was, uh, you know, like a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. And he writes he writes about the culture industry in there. Uh, you could go on to any search engine and just type in the words Theodore Adorno, who was a, a Frankfurt School professor and, uh, you know, a philosopher and all sorts of stuff. He was a Marxist and he actually wrote an essay called The Culture Industry, and he breaks down exactly how a culture industry works. So it's a real thing, uh, giving you your culture. In fact, if you go into other countries, uh, just an example, you know, Brazil has a ministry of culture. Yeah, yes, yeah. Okay, so why would you need a ministry of culture? Exactly. Why would the government be interested in what your culture is? If if your if your culture is organic, the way mm. that you think it is, mm-hmm. coming up from the grassroots, mm-hmm. uh, why would the government need a ministry of culture? So, for the most part, uh, when it came, when it came to LSD and uh, the change, you know, and marijuana, and and those type of drugs being pushed out into society once again. Uh, one of the main uh, engines of pushing that out was Life magazine, and there's extensive research you could find on that, especially a, a guy by the name of Jan Urban uh, has has gone into uh, how uh, 
that was really pushed out by by the top. It was the whole idea of the hippie and the LSD movement and and that type of thing was actually created in in think tanks. And so LSD was sold to the public. You know, you're you're saying uh, that drugs were are, are kind of a way to to tune out to, to yeah. alleviate the pain. Yeah, alleviate the pain. But then think about the way LSD was actually sold. LSD was actually sold to the public as the opposite. It's like, hey, take this, you're going to be enlightened. Yes, that's correct. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, so they sold you on the idea. Once again, it was a fraud. It was a fraud selling, you know, being sold to you. Hey, once you take this, you're going to be tuned into what's real. Yes. Right. But then, turns out, now all the type of drugs that you take and the and the uh, drug culture that was born out of born out of all that and the terrible, uh, you know degradation of society after that, you know, with heroin in the 70s and cocaine in the 1980s, um, it became escapism. That's right. It was no longer about tuning into reality. It was about, no, we got to escape from reality. Yeah. And that's why you have the antidepressants of today. have any recommendations for people how they might be able to learn to think for themselves and and, I, and i'm not being derogatory here but you know i'm being serious a lot of us know, um, do need to learn to stop and think for ourselves instead of just soaking up what's given to us through the mass media do you have any ideas about that john yeah um a lot of them are a lot easier said than done right you know, I don't judge people based off of that type of stuff. I, I realize no, you know, no. it's very, very hard to do this, but um, I don't have a television in my home. Okay. I don't watch TV. Right. Um, coming up on a year now, I haven't even watched any media at all. Right. And it's been very good. Yes. It's been, it's been great, and I'm going to continue doing it. But, yeah. Uh, I used to. I, I haven't watched TV in a very, very long time. It's been years. Right. Um, I used to just watch movies. Um, sometimes I would watch TV shows, you know, after they'd come out on DVD or something like that, just to kind of see what's running through the cultural, you know, uh, yep. for lack of a better word, yep. uh, the cultural garbage. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I don't even need to do that anymore, and I feel better uh, not doing that. Um. Also, what you should do is is take a, take a second and look at your te- look at your favorite television show or your favorite song or whatever it is your favorite book it could be fiction and ask yourself if what's going on in those lyrics or uh, in in the storylines hmm. matches up with the social issues of the day. Right. Because, you see, that's not accidental. Right. That whatever it is that you're reading about or singing about or listening to, 
uh, matches up with what's running through uh, society because that was put there to reinforce all of the things running through the culture. Right. And it, like I said, it keeps you in that ether. It keeps you in that fog that's, that's constantly being reinforced by everything going around you. So if the topic of the day is uh, accepting gay people yeah. into society, yeah. and then you constantly have television shows and uh, effeminate men all over uh, TV, and then you hear effeminate men singing on the radio and that type of thing, ask yourself whether that's an accident or not. Whether, and, then, and then try to reflect back and think, was it always like this? Mm. Because it wasn't. And and then ask yourself, well, why wasn't it like it back then, but it, it's like this now? Or or vice versa. Ask yourself, well, why why is there something that existed back then, but it doesn't exist now? And then also ask yourself, are my beliefs shifting as the culture shifts? Because... You know, a belief should be a belief. There's nothing wrong with with questioning things, but then ask yourself, are you even really questioning something, or are you, are, are you just being guided? You know, it, it would be one thing to say, like, well, I'm, I'm you know, questioning a certain belief that I've had for a very long time, um, but then ask yourself, well, why am I questioning it? Am I being, have I been told through uh, society and through culture, to question that belief. Now, as a as a Christian, I would argue that um, uh, a person needs to do these things that you're talking about, and I 100% agree. And I, I would suggest they go the next step further and and uh, look into their Bible and see what 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 the Bible says, and see if their beliefs match up with what the Bible says. And can I just say? if their behavior then matches up with what it says. Because the Bible does talk about um, being transformed by renewing one's mind, right? We renew our minds. And part of that is done by uh, absorbing God's word, right, as Christians call it, okay? Now, I wanted to ask you this because I I think I've heard you talk about this before, John. Um, Christians would say that this, this topic we're talking about Christians would say that this is a spiritual battle, right? Now, I personally believe it's a spiritual battle, but I know that, you know, it's spiritual, but it's in the physical world. You know, there are flesh and blood people who are putting these things into action. That's my personal belief. I would, And I would believe that they would be being influenced in a spiritual sense, right? But how do you perceive it? You know, you, you do you think it's a spiritual battle? Um, well, I, I would, I would rather say that instead of focusing, you know, you can, you can listen to a lot of radio shows and they'll talk about the spiritual battle. Yeah. I would, I would take a different approach. Right. Um, not that, not that it isn't spiritual. Yes. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it isn't a spiritual battle, but here, here's what I would say. Yeah. Don't, don't let that be a cop out. Right. Don't let that be a cop out for tuning out and saying, saying, um, well, this is all taking place between, you know, the devil and God, or you know, mm-hmm. angels and demons. Yes. And 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 that it's all it's all going to be summed up in the end. First of all, you don't know 
the workings of how that is working. You see, right? You're not a, you're not you're not aware of the goings on of, of of how that is taking place. All all you know is what's going on in the physical. Right. That's all. That's all that you are aware of. Yes. So you need to take means to to remove yourself if 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 you're aware of it. Um, and, and want to make a change, you have to physically make the change. You can't just say, well, this is a spiritual battle and I'm just, in, you know, whatever whatever happens, you know, I, I know I know in the book of Revelation that it all turns out good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't just say that. You have to say, you know, there's stuff I have to take care of. You don't know uh, when the when when Revelations is going to take place. It, it, it's not going to, it might not even take place in your lifetime. That's right. Okay. Oh, I agree. So, if that is going to uh, happen, hmm. it wouldn't happen uh, for generations from now and right. generations from now on. So, so you you don't know when the end times are. I think even Jesus says that in the Bible. Yeah. So no one knows the day or the hour of his return. So what what I was going to say to you is what I hear you saying. I think how I I'm taking it is okay. So if you've got a family, you've got to do your utmost to protect them from certain elements that are being sold to us uh, through the mass media. If you've got friends that you care about, at least try and talk to them about these sorts of things. Um, if you have concerns in your, uh, let's say, your um, county or, or we call them, you know, council, stand up and have a say about those things that are happening happening in your area. Don't just push it off and say, look, I've got to leave this one to God because there's nothing I can do about it. And as you pointed out, I've read the book Revelations. It all works out in the end. I'm just going to leave it sit there. You're saying we have to be proactive and do something about it. And even if that would be in our families, correct? Like, you, you know, I know that your uh, family is very important to you. And so that's why I'm suggesting that one, because it's also important to me. So we must take care of our families, correct? That's the only way you really can do anything. I, I'm not one to get involved in politics. Right. Okay. So I, I don't I don't really believe um, in the you know in any any system that is currently uh, taking place at this moment is not something in my belief that you can really get much done in. Right. The only the only place you can really take action is with yourself mm -hmm. and with the people that you care about who are willing to listen to you. Um, I don't believe in evan evangelizing to people who don't want to listen to what you have to say. Right. Uh, a preacher on a street corner uh, evangelizing, he, he, he rarely um, gets a response out of people that, you know, is positive. And that's not the way to have a conversation with anybody in the first place. The, the only way you can really get anything across to people is to have a discussion like we're having right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we need to reintroduce into our way of our, our patterns is nonlinear conversation. Right. Like, like we, we've just had a we've just had a conversation. Sure, it was on a specific topic, but yeah. it was very nonlinear. We jumped all over the place. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's that's really how good conversation is, and and topics. You, you know, if you, if you think about it, recently I read something about this uh, in that book, Future Shock, by Alvin Toffler. Yeah. And he had made a great point how um, because people are hit with so much uh, media 
um, and it's edited media. Yes. And so what you're what you're getting is is a product. And you see, when when people have conversations with each other, they repeat. You know, we, we've repeated things throughout this conversation. Yes. I've repeated myself. You repeated yourself. Yeah. We've had banter. We've had banter back and forth between each other. That you know, where you say the same thing over, but you say it a different way. Right. You have to remember, in media, everything is edited, so you never say the same thing twice. The conversations between the characters on television and in movies, they are edited in a format so it's non-repetitive. Right. And it, yeah, so you're saying highly scripted and intentional. That's right. Yeah. And so it's not like that in real life. And the more that we engage that type of media, the more we start to act in that fashion. And we're actually taught to be linear thinkers. Mm. When, when in, in reality, watch a child play. Mm. A child will never play, will sit there for 10 minutes with one thing and go to another thing, then go to another thing, right. go to another thing, because that's how the natural brain is functioning. The right. natural brain doesn't, does not sit there and focus on one thing for, you know, two hours. Right, right, right. That's why people, even people who have conditioned themselves and trained themselves to study a particular thing, you need to take a break. Yes. You know, even at work, you get your breaks, right? That's right. Yeah, that's because um, you're actually, you've actually been conditioned and programmed to be that way, to go to a job, to work at a place. That, that's not something that's natural to you. You can't focus on something for very long, and employers, you know, know that that you need to break a breather. So it's the same way with thinking and conversation. In the old days before they had television and radio, people just used to sit around and talk. Yeah. And they would talk for hours and hours and hours, and it would it would be nonlinear. Yeah. And the more, the more we progressed down the highway of a short attention span... Uh, the more you're going to see people not be able to absorb anything you're talking about. Um, so many friends of mine and, and of my wife's, they have very short attention spans. What I notice with a lot of people that, that I talk to um, is particularly young people, but I'm, I'm not just saying young people, but it's the, that mobile phone in their hand. It's constant. They're not really listening to you. Sure. I've just noticed it in people, not even with the phones or anything like that. It's just trying trying to have a conversation with them or trying to yeah. engage them in, yeah. in a subject uh, for yeah. longer than five five minutes. It's it's very hard because they want to change the subject, and that's because you know if if you watch a news broadcast, they're hitting you with a bunch of information, but it's in ten to twenty second spurts. Yes, yes, good so, example. So yeah. so that's what people emulate. Yeah. You see, so so it's like, so what's going on in your life? Well, this, this, and this, and this. Okay, what's going on with the weather and sports? And then that's what people talk about. That's Did you right. see that game the other day? That's Did you right. see how hot it was the other day? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a it's a very good point. That's it's it's reality. It's what it's what's happening to us all.
Alrighty, well, I think we'll we'll leave it there, John. Um, thank you very much for your time. I've uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, again, thanks to Chris for putting me in touch with John. And uh, and if you'd like to hear John back on our show uh, with more topics similar to this, please just write to me at uh, gk at likeflintradio.com. If you've got any specific questions or comments for John, you can write to me at that address and I'll pass them on to him and make sure he gets them. So, so John Adams, thanks very much for coming on to Like Flint Radio. Thanks for having me and uh, hopefully uh, I can come back again sometime. Bye. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the
Thank you.